generations of the dominant philosophers not seeing themselves as having a social location. They see themselves as the default. And so no need to um, bring their perspective into things. Right. And, and so it takes, it takes, I mean, that's one of the things I try to do in this book is to help train readers to notice that they too are gendered in some way or another. They too have a social location. There is no non-gender, right? Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon where I'm giving you all seven days of a free trial. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you join the ITBR professor level, which you'll see gets you access to all of our rewatch podcast series like Queerest Folk and Smash, and all of our Teaches series, including when we rewatched Scream with you all, when we discussed The Exorcist, we're about to do a Britney Spears memoir episode. So, oh, and The Fall of the House of Usher is coming up. You also get access to both book clubs. And while you're at it, while you're joining our Patreon, where you're getting your seven days for free, I would really love if you Make sure you like and follow us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave a review. It really does help us in terms of advertisers and sponsors. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network, and it is just wonderful to be part of this arts and culture organization and have you all out there reach out to me. So again, remember, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook and we're on X as well. Enjoy this episode, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on 
college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram, all of that I have done. So just reach out to me. Also, I'm really excited to announce that the December book club choice is Britney Spears's The Woman in Me memoir. So to join the book club, head to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and go to events and you're going to see a form there. Just so I know how many of you are joining the book club and that way I can reach out to each of your email addresses and poll all of you to see what date at the end of December works. It's going to be the week after Christmas, so don't worry. It's not going to be the week of Christmas. That would be hectic. And then I'll let you all know how to join the book club, which happens on Patreon. You just join under the ITBR book club section. So can't wait to see who wants to discuss Britney Spears. We have a lot to dissect there. And in the also, if you want to join the Wicked Broadway Musical group event, which is happening in March, head to that event section on the website and fill out that Google form by December 1st. Ah, so much happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and I love this community. I love being the host and director of this arts and culture organization. Thank you all for supporting me. It means so much. And please spread the word for my consultation services, for the podcast, the book club, the Broadway musical, group event, all the things. And without further ado, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited to be joined with Dr. Shannon Day. Dr. Shannon Day is the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Classics at the University of Regina, right? That's Dr. Right. Day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so making sure I got that pronunciation right. She researches and teaches about social and feminist philosophy and issues in higher education. I'll mention what book we're going to be deep diving, but before I discuss an exciting Broadview Press book, which you know we love Broadview Press here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, they help sponsor our show. So, you know, shout out to them. Uh, she created the University Affairs column called Dispatches on Academic Freedom. We absolutely love discussions around academic freedom here, Dr. Day. So I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about academic freedom and what that means right now. Um, and what I was so excited to learn is Dr. Day has taught so much on philosophy from the 17th century to the 20th century, gender studies, sexuality studies, and is the author of a new edition 
2023 edition of Beyond the Binary, Thinking About Sex and Gender, published by Broadview Press, but its first edition came out in 2016. So without further ado, I'd love to hear from you. So welcome, Dr. Shannon Day. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Andrew, I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to talk with you about the book and anything else that comes up. Well, so I think I'm always just curious when I'm joined with an academic here is having just gotten my PhD in English and I was talking to Dr. Day, if you can see the video, I'm wearing a Stony Brook sweatshirt and that's where I got my PhD, but I also have a grad certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. And I am curious, what is it like um, being both in the philosophy world and in the gender studies, like having that intersection meet where you are? It's less weird now than it was um, 10 or 15 years ago. Philosophy has tended to be a pretty white male conservative discipline in, in lots of ways and hasn't taken seriously gender studies, feminist philosophy, queer studies um, until very, very recently. And so when the book first came out, I think that uh, even then it still felt like a little bit on the margins of philosophy, but as more and more um, women and equity denied folks are actually pursuing careers as uh, philosophers and joining philosophy departments, um, we're seeing a lot more of that kind of overlap where folks have that kind of specialization in the two areas. And when you first went for your PhD, did you always have at the forefront of your mind, I really want to study gender and philosophy? Was that something you were really cognizant about or did the gender studies come in, which came first, the chicken or the egg, the gender studies or the philosophy studies? Oh, definitely philosophy came first. Um, my PhD was really on a whole bunch of dead white males and I wasn't thinking at all about gender or feminism or um, queer studies at the time. Um, and I kind of powered through doing that work, doing my publications and the job market and so forth. And then um, the first job that I got was at the University of Waterloo in, in, in Ontario and in Canada. And one of the first courses they assigned me was uh, a, a philosophy course on gender studies that actually ended up being the basis for this book. Um, and in retrospect, like they probably assigned it to me for the worst possible reasons. I didn't have any kind of credentials in women and gender studies. I hadn't done any kind of work in the area. Um, it, it could well just be that they thought that, you know, women, women are gendered, she's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> She'll figure something out. But I was so junior, it never occurred to me to, to ask why the heck they would assign me a course like that that was so far beyond my expertise. And so I just threw myself in it. And that became a really exciting new journey for me. And I don't know how long it would have taken me to follow that path if they hadn't weirdly assigned me a course that was well beyond my expertise. Um, that course was already on the books and had previously been taught as a kind of social and political philosophy course on issues around equity hiring and abortion rights and those sorts of really practical things. Um, but I wasn't at all a political or ethical philosopher. I worked very much in metaphysics, which is, I know this is a really unhelpfully vague definition, but kind of the branch of philosophy that studies reality, what the character of reality is, how we carve reality up and, and so forth, what's real and what, what isn't. Um, and, and I thought, well, I can't both stretch into the, the sex and gender stuff and stretch into 
um, political and ethical philosophy. And so I'm going to stick with my comfort zone, which is metaphysics, uh, kind of categorizing the universe, and see what I can do with that expertise on the topic of gender. Um, so that became uh, the basis for a very new way of teaching the course, which was ultimately the basis for this book, because you've read the book and you know that's exactly what happens in the book. Well, and your book covers three millennia, which I just find so fascinating with your sources that you're using. And it hearing you and talking about the course that you were assigned to teach, I'm assuming there's so much writing um, of literature that you just started to explore. Like, were you even looking back to the ancient period for how, you know, women were perceived by, say, the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans and like just making your journey through Western civilization? I was, but I don't want to sound more methodical than it actually was. Like, genuinely, the way it started was with me crowdsourcing on Facebook. I went onto Facebook after I was assigned the course and told my my Facebook friends, many of whom were philosophers, some of whom were gender studies scholars, some of whom were just folks, right? Um, the story that I just told you, I've been assigned this course, it's beyond my expertise, but I'm going to make it about the metaphysics of sex and gender. What should I teach? What's cool to teach in that area? And people started sending me cool stuff. And I started just reading things they recommended to me. And then you know how it goes. You read one thing, and then you read the works that it's citing, and, and you start to go down that rabbit hole. And so there were many rabbit holes at once. Um, I think that had I actually, as a graduate student, decided to work on categories of sex and gender, I probably would have done a very different literature review, but I had a few months to pull a course together, and so I relied on my my friends and colleagues to send cool stuff my way. Um, but I think um, some of that three millennium stuff as well is, is that I really was trained not only as a metaphysician, but as an historian of philosophy. And so I had particular interest in um, mapping out for students the fact that gender didn't become something weird and controversial in like 1985, right? It's something that's been contested and close to our identities as long as they're human beings. Well, and I think... The philosopher in ancient Greek society, is it Hypatia or I remember there was even questions around whether she did the work she did in mathematics and questioning her authority. Like that's not a new, like you're saying, concept. Um, even Socrates and those philosophers had, uh, there's that whole, is uh, Diatima a woman or um article that David Halperin did and like, oh no, she's not actually a woman. She's a figure. And it's fascinating yeah. that work that happens in the ancient period. But um, I did want to ask because there's so many listeners here, Shannon, if I can call you Shannon. I could... Please, yeah, of course. Okay. Um, but there's so many listeners here who are from both the academic and just the general public who are so invested in questions around gender and sexuality that I'm always fascinated with what the general public is introduced to by public libraries. Like Estelle Friedman's work is widely available. I love that book she has with Superwoman on the cover. I think it's it's a history of feminism, but you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, no Turning Back, I think, is the... Um, title, but then there's the more highly, we'll call it feminist theory, like Judith Butler, or even Sarah Ahmed. And um, you have 
all of the specific Linda Zarilli, who's a political philosopher, um, the niches of academia and feminist theories. But then the broad public, they're sometimes just introduced to, say, a celebrity's memoir, like um, even how Paris Hilton thinks about feminism, whatever they're seeing in their new fiction or new memoir section. So like, how is that something you've even seen with your students? Like when they first come to the classroom, is there certain celebrity culture ideas about feminism they have? Or like, what are they learning from the broad public compared to when they deep dive in the academic theories of feminism? Well, I, I want to be clear that when most of my students come to the classroom, to the gender studies classroom, right, it depends on what course you're teaching. But when I teach a, a class on, on gender studies, gender issues, there's a real selection effect. That's the, the term for when um, you get a non-representative sample group because there's something about the situation that's drawn certain kinds of, of, of people. In this case, um, I obviously end up with, with lots of students who are interested for various reasons in, in gender and sex and sexual orientation, very often from their own lived experience um, um, in my classes. They already bring an enormous amount of expertise. So I rarely find myself in the situation where I have a class full of students who've never really thought about these things except for what they've heard celebrities say on TV. Um, now, um, many of these students who are antecedently really interested in sex and gender are also therefore really interested in sex and gender as it's represented and as it plays out on media. Um, and so they bring in fantastic examples, but they're not bringing them in kind of as, as raw, unanalyzed data. They're typically already thinking about them. So I want to make clear just how much um, intellectual investment my students typically already have in the area when they come in. Um, the other thing I want to note is that I've been teaching in this area for, uh, what, 15 years now, um, and the media examples that students bring in has really changed over time. As you would expect, a lot has changed about uh, sex and gender and who's talking about sex and gender and what they're saying about it um, over 15 years. Also, which particular media they're drawing on has, has changed. I, I just now referred to television. That was true 15 years ago. Nobody watches television anymore. So now it might be a TikTok or something that they're bringing into the class, right? Well, and even Alex Cooper's podcast, Call Her Daddy, I'm not sure if like any of your students mention it, but I feel it's such this touchstone, especially in American culture, but I mean, you're in Canada, so it's similar cultures okay. and we're adjacent with each other. And what she does when she sits down with, whether it be um, a supermodel or a singer, um, like she's had so many, you know, sit down and talk about their lives and more female empowerment conversations. And I feel like right now we're in the girl boss era, like the female empowerment, even when Sheryl Sandberg had published that nonfiction book, what was it like six years ago, eight years ago, um, that it really was all about the corporate, how women can enter the corporate space. Do you feel that right now, feminism, some are saying we're in the fourth wave of feminism, but I still have a hard time understanding what that actually means. Like, I feel it's not the same construction of like how the feminist waves, 
you know, yeah, some yeah, yeah. even critique that the waves actually even exist in that way. Like it depends on what identity, like if you're talking about white women, you can follow a trajectory, but if we're outside of white women's bodies, then there's always been struggles outside of that, you know, upper middle class white female experience. Totally. And I was going to say, the closer you get to thinking through the waves, the more skeptical you become of the, the wave analogy at all. And the more aware you become of the um, the kind of black hole of white feminism, right, that um, sucks everything in and, and um, effaces uh, the kind of difference that I think, I hope in this wave or not wave, whatever it is, I hope we're doing a better job of centering on um, but I think that the other thing about our current time is that we're more than ever polarized by geography. And that's true in both the U.S. and Canada, where um, we, we typically in, in urban centers, we have um, folks who are um, doing a much better job of centering on um, the perspectives and lived experiences of equity denied folks, whether that's equity denied in virtue of racialization, indigenization, queerness, um, et cetera. Um, and in the rural areas, uh, we're seeing, I think, more resistance than we've seen for, for 20 years or more um, to differences in embodiment and to those to the authority of the folks who are speaking from those differences of embodiment. We're, we're seeing some really difficult polarization right now. And a lot of these works, even I'm not sure if you read The Trouble with White Women, but I thought that was a fascinating book. OK, um, yeah, but there's just there's like so much. Well, you know how much is published in popular presses and academic presses. So you're like trying to keep up. And that's something about why I love these interviews, because I'm always like on my deep dive. Um, but I say to everyone out there, just go to your public library and like look at the feminist, the gender studies section and queer studies. And it is interesting to see what's being disseminated at the library at a Barnes and Noble. Um, I'm not sure if you have Barnes and Noble at, in Canada. I think you do. But... I, don't know if we, I don't know if we do either, but we know what they are. <laughs> okay, you know what it is. Okay. Um, but I love what you're saying, Shannon, which is like this work, even we're seeing it in current films or new novels. There's on Hulu, the show The Other Black Girl is about to premiere. And I think that's a really fascinating account of even how a white female empowered presence can seem unsettling to a woman of color. Like that now TV and film is starting to look at um, you know, what are they talking about when they're talking about consciousness raising with women? Like, are they including all women? But this is not, like you've said, a new concept. This is something uh, Sojourner Truth even was questioning or any of the women of color at Seneca Falls. Uh, Harriet Jacobs um, was questioning white women's tears in her narrative um, about slavery. So do you think that right now, like you're saying, there is this geographic divide. Do you think that it is really a metropolitan attitude? Like some metropolitan areas, just they're quickly, um, the speed is just taking off of understanding intersectionality. And it's almost, I don't want to say blase, but it's part of the fabric. Like you walk in, I'm in New York City, 
or Philly. I was just in Philly and there was an LGBTQ cabaret and the doors were open and there were drag performances and it was just embraced. It's like, oh yeah, that's part of this climate. But then you're in another area that would be used as right-wing propaganda. It's boggling yeah, the mind. There's, there's good um, evidence from social psychology that when people live um, close together, they embrace difference. And when they live spread out, they fear difference. And I think that that is both a cause and an effect. When you're around people who are different from you, you learn that they're people and you 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 see them as human rather than giving in to um, the mechanisms of dehumanization that can lead you to see them as, as other, right? But also the folks who want to live around difference often seek out those metropolitan areas. So there's that selection effect again, right? And it creates a kind of a kind of feedback loop. And so um yeah, I do think that my my experience within even, I mean, the city I'm in is so tiny by comparison with New York or Philly. We've got like 150,000 people. It's a little prairie city. Um, but even in a little city like this, I think that there's a real embrace of diversity and different perspectives. And um, I will say that, uh, what, three weeks ago, there was, uh, we're a capital city. There was a protest at our legislature because our very conservative government is like many other conservative governments making a move on trans kids right now, legislatively. And um, tons of people showed up with trans flags and non-binary flags. And it wasn't just trans folks who showed up. It wasn't just uh, to us LGBTQ folks who showed up. It was the whole city and people who came in from, from other cities as well um, who showed up to stand in solidarity and to form a really diverse um, solidarity uh, response, right? Um, and I think uh, much as that was forced on us by um, a really terrible legislative situation, uh, I don't think we would have seen it 20 years ago, right? So I think that we are um, in the cities <laughs> um, becoming more cosmopolitan, as you say. I am here with the co-owner of one of my favorite stores here in Port Jefferson Village, New York. It is called The Soapbox. So Janine said, Andrew, I have these four products you need to get your hands on. It's called Four for Fall. So she's going to go over these four products. I know first you have a soap for me. What is the soap? I, do. I have a soap for you. It is called Apple Cider Shea Butter Soap. It's by a company called Greenwich Bay. And this is a great soap because you can use it for your hands or your body. And it has a delicious apple cider scent. And I think you're actually already familiar with it. Yes, it is Try in it. my shower. I still have it. It lasts a very long time. Yeah, great lather. The lather is wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's just so luxurious. And I love the scent into November. Yes. You know, this apple cider just it evokes so many cozy feelings oh. after the soap we have something that you can add on to yes. in the shower so what is this this is a wonderful wonderful um exfoliating shower scrub it is by a company called primal almonds and it's a sugar whip shower scrub and the scent is pumpkin spice it's a moisturizing sugar scrub so it's tiny little sugar granules and it's something that you would use after you shower 
twice a week because you don't want to strip your skin of your natural um, oils and your your moisture, but it's wonderful. It just really exfoli exfoliates all that dead skin and leaves your skin very so smooth and soft from all the um, the sugar. So after I use the exfoliant right now, we need to moisturize. So yeah. I know you have a really nice fall body lotion for us. Absolutely. Um, this is just such a delicious scent. This is one of my favorites for fall. It is The scent is Orchard Breeze. And it's by a company called Michelle Design Works. Um, this is another product that you can use hand or body, hand and body. Um, it's great. You can place it um, on your vanity, just a couple of pumps for your hands or use it on your entire body. But it's shea butter based. So it's extremely moisturizing. Um, it's it's just wonderful. And the scent is just lovely. We need something more deep for our face. Everyone yeah. wants face masks. And I know that you absolutely love this company and this product. Yes. This is one of my favorite masks by one of my favorite companies that we carry and we support. The company is called Farmhouse Fresh, and they're right out of Texas. The mask is called Splendid Dirt, and it's a nutrient-rich mud mask. Um, it consists of pumpkin puree, and the benefits of this mask, uh, it's a pore minimizer, a radiance booster, and a skin degunker. So it's an all-around great mask. If you really want a boost of radiance, it brightens your skin, and it really cleanses your pores. If they live on Long Island or near Long Island, you know, what is your address uh, for them to come into the store? We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson, New York, right in the village. Um, and if you can't make it, you have to come in because we just have so much fun stuff in here. So many wonderful products. Um, but if you can't make it in, please give us a call. We're more than happy to um, ship any of these wonderful, all any of these wonderful products to you. Um, uh, call us at 631-509-1424. You could always um, reach us on Instagram at the Soapbox NY, or you could always um, check us out on our website, Soapbox NY. Um, and yeah, there's so many ways to access your so products. Many ways to reach us. And Janine is more than happy. And Mariana. The other co-owner. My mom, actually. Yes. yes my mother. Are so willing to take your orders yes. via phone, via Instagram. And I can't wait for everyone else to enjoy these luxurious products. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Even my parents showed me 
their Republican state um, Senate campaign um, in a suburban community here in New Jersey, right outside of Philly. It's a large town. It's 58,000 people in their town. So, you know, it is like a small little city. You know, New Jersey, the Northeast were very dense in terms of suburbs. But it was even interesting how the Republicans here are running on. Um, they're like, this Democrat is nuts because he wants um, sex ed taught to first and second graders. It was just all of these talking points that is fear mongering and not based in reality. And right. like, again, trying to say there's biological boys, it literally says this on like, I mean, I think it's offensive, but it says it on the campaign uh, bullet points, but biological boys are going to be on your children's sports teams. And I'm thinking, first of all, if you're talking about trans girls, that's so offensive to, yeah. you know, try to misgender them, but also why are transgender children being used as these scapegoats to scare? It is because they don't think, do you think, Shannon, it's just as basic as they're not, they're betting on you not knowing a transgender child or a transgender person, so then you can dehumanize them? Well, it's two things. I think you're right. That's betting on you not knowing a transgender person, so it's easy to dehumanize them. I think that there's also intentional disinformation being spread about um, what's involved in being trans. And in particular, um, a lot of the folks who are now um, very supportive of anti-trans bills are supportive of them because they wrongly believe that uh, surgical um, gender affirmation is happening on children. And, and it's quite reasonable to say, I don't think that a child should have a a, a, a panectomy until you know they haven't reached the age of, of course it's a reasonable thing but it's a complete fiction because it's not happening anyway um i liken it to the some of the propaganda against abortion rights that really focuses on um third trimester abortions and most people whether they think of themselves as pro-choice or not feel some moral recoil at third trimester abortions because the fetus is is uh, so fully developed at that point and and is, is experiencing sensation at that point and it seems really callous if you think that um, those are uh, capricious abortions that are happening. Now we know that they are vanishingly rare. They hardly ever happen. And when they happen, um, it's always because of a medical emergency. It's never because of somebody wanting to wear a bikini on vacation is sometimes part of the, 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 the disinformation, right? And so I see a similar kind of pattern happening now with the disinformation that's being spread about trans people and trans rights. Um, they're um, trying to get the public to freak out about a scary thing that would be awful if it were happening, but it's just not happening. And this ties into Beyond the Binary, your work in it, which is even, I'm sure, right, uh, with academic freedom, I always encourage, and I even have on the show, I just had an episode about Barbie, and I have two very different perspectives. One is more how... Um, the feminism in Barbie, like how we can contest, like, is it really moving the needle or is it relying on patriarchal stereotypes, right? Like, is it sure, of course. thinking that the audience, it's so empowering, but what is it really doing with um, women and men in the movie? Like, 
Because I do think Barbie does show us male fragility in a way that we don't see a lot. But um, again, I don't think one film is going to change the shape of culture, but conversations and the domino effect will help the landscape. Um, But in your work, you do address, you know, I'm thinking even with feminist philosophers, the debates that have gone on for I mean, centuries with even a Hannah Arendt compared to Anne Rand and how different they're viewing corporatization or women's roles in patriarchal society that what are you thinking about even women who are spreading transphobia, but they're doing it in the face of saying they're for women? Like, you know, an Ann Coulter comes to my mind or a Megyn Kelly. Like, again, these are white blonde women. I'm not just trying to like stereotype white blonde women, but it is interesting to me who these spokespeople are. And even a Caitlyn Jenner who says she is for trans rights, but completely runs against anything that has to do with affirming trans uh, care or affirming that identity. Like they get used by the media as a spokesperson. And we're seeing that it's not just in the media, um, but we're seeing that in um, philosophy in particular. I mean, most of your listeners are going to care more about the media than about philosophy, but the philosophy part is, is close to my heart. There's been a big division in the last three or so years in uh, academic philosophy between um, folks who call themselves gender critical feminists. Um, they um, are sometimes referred to as trans-exclusionary radical feminists, so TERFs. They don't like to be called TERFs. They've been calling themselves gender critical. Um, and those of us uh, who are either trans-feminists or uh, trans-inclusive feminists and so forth, that's become a really heated, painful divide within philosophy as well. And one of the things that makes it really complicated, and maybe my answer here is a microcosm for a larger question, is that um, those gender critical feminists who are themselves women scholars um, will very often respond to trans positive feminists and and either say that if if they're women, they're uh, self-hating women, or if they're um, men, they're misogynists, and that's why they're trying to silence these gender critical feminists. And so there's a kind of twisting of um, the authority that comes with social location in virtue of the fact that they're they're women, women so they should get to speak on behalf of women um, is, is kind of the claim. Um, but, um, and, and that just makes those debates um, more painful and complicated. There's way more invective and kind of ad hominems being, being thrown around because, you know, if a, for instance, male philosopher wades in and says, well, this is, this is actually hateful rhetoric, not robust philosophy. They say, yes, you're just a misogynist trying to silence a woman, right? So they're, they're kind of using the language of feminism to, to defend themselves. Um, I, I I honestly, with with the end cultures of the world, like they're just bad people. And so it's easy for me to understand why Megan Kelly or Ann Coulter would take a terrible view. Like their whole their whole deal is taking terrible views. That's easy enough to understand. Um, but with some of the more um sincere women who think of themselves as feminists and who genuinely see trans people and in particular trans women as a threat to themselves. I struggle with how they arrive at that conclusion. Um, 
the evidence simply isn't there. The, the, uh, the, the kinds of threats that they often talk about are biological males in change rooms, biological males in prisons, um, and uh, the intimation seems to be that um, biological females, and by the way, I obviously hate those categories, but I'm trying to do justice to, to the way they characterize things. But the, the suggestion is that biological females in change rooms and biological females in prisons are um, vulnerable if there are trans women in those spaces. But there's absolutely no empirical support for that view, right? And I don't know how folks arrive at embracing that view in full sincerity when there's just there's just no evidence. And in fact, the evidence is to the contrary, that um, trans women, uh, nobody is more, more, more endangered in a bathroom or a change room or a prison than a trans woman is, right? The rates of violence against trans women in those spaces um, remains terrible. And so there's a kind of um, double irony of the the, the folks who are um, statistically the most often the victims being cast as the 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 threats and the aggressors. I don't know how we get there. I know how Ann Coulter gets there. She's terrible. Well, and that's exactly well, and it's exactly what happens in the witch trials of J.K. Rowling because I listen to the whole podcast because I am one where Shannon, I do believe again, not everyone has to do this, but I always want to hear the side where I might, I really don't think I'll agree, but I just want to hear out, okay, how are you approaching this perspective and vantage point? And it does interest me with JK Rowling because every time she comes on this podcast to be interviewed, she never is saying, I want to talk to a transgender person. And I'm like, that's very telling to me. Why was she not in the space of the transgender community? Why? I'm sure the interviewer, it's not on the interviewer's <laughs> It's not their honor onerous because I'm sure J.K. Rowling had a list of demands to be on the show. Um, but if I was the interviewer, I would have said, I really want J.K. Rowling, you to be with a transgender advocate like an Alexandra Billings or a Laverne Cox. Like, I want you to be with someone who can actually talk to you and we can have a back and forth. But it's interesting to me how silo J.K. Rowling is. And she says, I'm so scared of my life, like the transgender community. I respect them, but I don't respect those who are going into locker rooms who aren't women. And I'm like, wait, but you're still talking and Vic, you're you're still scapegoating the transgender community. But it was not connecting, Shannon. It's it's a very you feel like you're on the in the upside down. And that's my concern is how a person like J.K. Rowling has so much credibility to the public and they hear what she says and they're like, oh yeah, she's right. This is happening in locker rooms. And I'm thinking, where is this happening? <laughs> I don't see the statistics. I don't see the news stories. It's just, it feels very just propaganda like yeah. to promote a certain, like you said, trans exclusionary cause or even in philosophy, I'm thinking of Christina Hoff Summers, which I don't have an issue with, but I know that that's, I've heard her on podcasts and it's interesting because she frames things in a very similar way to J.K. Rowling. Yeah. You know. Yeah. J.K. Rowling is a really nice example, though, because I think about her as, I mean, we can kind of see her progression um, in a way that separates her from the end cultures of the of the world, right? She's not just a bad faith actor. Um, I think 
you know, she's she's a writer, she's got a public presence, she's she's on Twitter. Um, she's and she's about my age, so I'm about to say something ageist, but I think I can because we're about the same age. She's maybe a little bit too old to get the subtleties of how Twitter works, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And and um see some folks who seem sympathetic saying some things that seem worrying and and clicks like or whatever which is like a, just a, a just a normal human reaction we make mistakes we respond to partial information all the time the best of us do it at at, at sometimes uh i think that part of the issue with her is that um having gotten herself into that situation she then became kind of embarrassed and defensive and when we feel embarrassed and defensive we can end up doubling down and of course when you're super famous and rich like jk rowling and you make a misstep on social media the social media world is pretty unforgiving i don't actually believe in cancel culture for a whole bunch of reasons it would probably take up too much time today but but it's true that you can get a bunch of people yelling at you on social media if you're famous and you piss them off and, and that happened um, and when that happens to you, you can end up pointing in the wrong direction, right? And then you just kind of double down. So, I mean, that your example actually helped me to think through a little bit um, how the non-end cultures of the world end up in a bad place with respect to trans issues and so forth. And that's not to justify any of that, but it's not about like evil humans or whatever. Yeah. It's just um, normal flawed human psychology and social media and everything is terrible, you know? (laughs) Well, and I'm going to step in it too. I mean, I think that there's a part right now, Shannon, and I'm not sure if you're seeing this with even the academic community, but I feel like in academia, there's been a lot of self-censoring, like really, really nervous to be vulnerable, like really nervous of using certain language or you know, saying I can't be open about certain topics. And that's why I will listen to, again, I'm not like only trying to bring airtime to, there's a lot of like the Laverne (laughs) Cox show I absolutely love. I think there's so many wonderful podcasts, like even, um, you know, what NPR does with some of their conversations, I think is really well done. But I also do learn a lot from those that I critique because I think it's interesting to hear their perspectives And because then I'm not always having my views mirrored and thinking of, well, why do I believe what I believe philosophically? And there's this show called It's Done Now, I think, the podcast, but it's still up. And it's called The Femsplainers. And it was done by Danielle Crittenden, a journalist, and Christina Hoff Summers. And but there was like an interesting moment where they talk a lot about um, academic liberalism. Like, I think I've heard this so much that academics are liberal, um, but they're liberal, but they're not open to debates in the classroom or they kind of, it's a type of liberalism that seems tokenizing. And you hear these critiques a lot about academic feminism. And I was just wondering, Shannon, especially with your work beyond the binary, how has it been to really talk about these controversies in the classroom like do you feel that there's a lot of support right now for that or there's almost a backing away from certain topics because of a fear of backlash or you know a faculty member thinking they're going to step like put their foot in their mouth especially if they're not from a marginalized community and they're trying to say be an ally in the classroom and they're really worried about how it's going to come off oh so many answers um 
<laughs> let me let me say um I want to first focus a bit on students and then I'll turn to your question about um faculty members maybe self-censoring. Um in my own experience in the classroom, um what I do in the first couple of weeks of the class is get the students to work together through an iterative process. We don't do it in five minutes. We work on it a little bit, then we sleep on it, then we come back to it. But we work together uh, to come up with a kind of set of principles or guidelines. And I say we, but I'm just a master of ceremonies. The students are the ones writing them. And the reason for all of uh, for, for this work is because we agree from the outset that we're going to learn a lot more um, if we cultivate a classroom in which people can share their own lived experience, their own perspectives, we know that, that gender is really close to people's sense of self, their moral selves, their religious selves, and that there's going to be disagreement and different experiences in the classroom, um, and that it's super, super vulnerable to share those things. And so we spend a couple of weeks um, learning about the value of sharing those things, and then the students coming up with with a kind of the, the terms for how they're going to share them with each other and then still be friends afterwards and 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 not have it degenerate into um, a big fight. Um, and that works really well. I've had students um, share a range of really different perspectives. I mean, this this claim that academia, um, is all just a monolithic leftism. It's, it's just false. Students from a, a range of different backgrounds um, can and do share their views. Profs from a range of different backgrounds can and, and do share their views. Um, as for um, whether profs are self-censoring, um, I think that it, we are for a range of reasons, some of them good and some of them not so good. Um, I think that uh, like cis white women like me have become hopefully much more aware of the privilege that we carry in this world and how overrepresented our voices are. And so very often when I'm teaching, um, there will be moments where um, I purposely hold back on something because my voice is already overrepresented. So that's not, I wouldn't characterize that as self-censorship. I would characterize that as, as judgment, right? Pedagogical judgment and in, in trying to ensure that um, one perspective isn't too dominant, right? Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, 
writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions and how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower boiler room. Um, but I'm also aware uh, of folks who are um, from various kinds of social locations, right? Afraid of speaking frankly in the classroom when they talk about things like race and gender and politics and so forth, because the situation right now um, is so polarized. And there's always the fear of a student who will have a recording device in a classroom and something gets quoted out of context and suddenly Campus Watch is um, posting about you and you're getting hate mail and your president is getting hate mail that's saying you should fire this person, right? The reality is 
um, we're under a kind of scrutiny that we weren't in the past. But um, typically, it's um, professors on the left who are being attacked by groups like Campus Watch and, and having to really be careful um, about what they say um, and not you know, the conservative uh, white dude economics prop, they're fine. They're teaching the way they always have, right? Mm-hmm. Or engineering school. Yeah, it is. Int- I feel that the humanities right now, because of characters and narratives and arts and culture topics are, this is where we're really just shifting in our culture with thinking about representation. Representation happens in the humanities, in my opinion. I mean, the science does have representation with questions that are asked, say, in a calculus class, like, you know, who's the person who um, is part of the equation and described in this mathematical experiment? You know what I'm saying? Like, there could be representation of people and bodies, but it's not the same hard hitting nuance. And I think what you said, Shannon, makes a lot of sense. Um, and this is why. Do you think it's helpful for, especially um, in feminist studies, gender studies, sexuality studies, courses, not every faculty member is ready to become like what I do, which is a public humanities, you know, scholar in the open. Like I'm on TikTok, I'm on Instagram, like I'm very vulnerable, but I'm used to that scrutiny now. I think though there is a push for faculty to start to get a public image and a brand. Like they are, you are Dr. Shannon Day. And Dr. Shannon Day is her own entity who has her own brand. Are faculty ready for that? Like, are they even trained to really start to see themselves as a brand with their own freedom of expression? Like whatever they say represents their own image and their own talking points. Certainly not trained for. I mean, there are very few faculty who are trained to do public scholarship or media engagement or, or anything like that. And that can then create a kind of phenomenon where somebody goes out there a little bit unprepared, gets some backlash, and then really wants to pull back from it afterwards. Or maybe in the, the case of somebody, you know, analogous with what we were saying with um, um uh, uh, oh my god, I've forgotten her name. <laughs> I can't believe I've forgotten her name. It's the Harry Potter woman. <laughs> Rowling. Oh, J.K. Rowling. J.K. J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, so somebody um, a- analogous to Rowling who maybe um, steps up there a little bit naively and gets some backlash and then they end up doubling down or something like that, right? So I, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating what we don't train faculty for. We don't train faculty to teach. We don't train them to engage in university governance. We don't train them to engage in um, media and public engagement. Basically, they put their heads down and write a dissertation, and then we assume they can do all of the other things. Um, so, no, not everyone is ready to to have that kind of um, public brand. Um, I think that it's it's easier for folks with tenure um, it's easier for folks from different social, from various social locations. It's we know that racialized folks get a much rougher ride on social media than white folks do, for instance. Um, we know that there are similar kinds of um, disparities in terms of, of of gender and other kinds of social locations and and so forth. And so there are two issues there, right? The intersection of the lack of training 
and the particular kinds of social locations that can um, produce backlash. And then you get all kinds of interesting and terrible feedback loops from all that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also find that because there isn't training in media, I mean, this is where I'm advocating now, Shannon, like I am starting to offer consulting with my business, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, because I really want to help academics with their social media brand because they don't have that training. It can be very easy for someone to jump in front of the media and almost, I don't want to use the word grifter because I feel like it's overused, but they can take advantage, I'll say, right? You are given authority with having a PhD and it is now a credential that the media is going to use as well. So-and-so said this, like, Dr. Jordan Peterson said it. So this is how masculinity studies. This is what's happening, right? And it, there are things Jordan Peterson says. He is very nuanced. I mean, he is, um, you know, well-read and well-versed, but it doesn't mean his opinion is the, you know, only view in the field. And I think because we don't have faculty trained in media relations, and it can be very controlled what they're doing at conferences. I've always said, why aren't these conferences broadcast? Like, why isn't there a media footprint? Like, I'm now pitching to be at conferences on the ground and do short interviews with every like everyone who's there presenting because the public would love to learn what everyone's studying. They just, we don't have enough nuance. We get, you know, you get specific people who... um are wanting to be on, say, broadcast journalism in that field, and they'll be on news shows. And that's really the public's awareness. You know, like even a Dr. Maya, Maya, um, Maya Bialik, who I love, but she's on Jeopardy. But right, the, the public likes faces. And I think when it comes to gender studies and sexuality studies, the public only has a few representatives. And it can be very uh, strawman oriented when it comes to arguments. I mean, that's my view right now. So I'm curious, do you actually think the public would enjoy traditional academic conference talks? Or do you think that academic conference talks should change in order to make them digestible by the public? I think the public would enjoy the conversations if you have an interlocutor who can sit down with the academics and translate their conversation to a digestible, um, almost putting it through a converter in a way of just having someone from, and I'm not just pitching myself, but having someone from the inside of academia really know what it's like to be in the broadcast field of, oh, this is what you're communicating to the public. Like, let's... Imagine that you're riding the Turner Classic Movie Great Movie Ride in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I 
was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Happy almost holiday season. Because the holidays are upon us, I'm sure so many of you out there are thinking, oh my, what am I going to get my friends, my family, my children, my romantic partner, my husband, my wife, any, you know, significant person in your life. Look no further than my good friend, Mandy Bengal, who makes handmade crocheted items. Her company is called Mandy Made It. You can follow her on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And you will see all of these crocheted items that she's going to be able to customize for you, including special characters, sports team figures, even holiday items like a snowflake or a Christmas tree. So I have Mandy's keychains. I have the poison apple from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have a rainbow um, flag that she made me. So Mandy is able to really customize an order just depending on what your hobbies and passions are. And you know, what item you're really looking for. So because you're listening to me talk about Mandy, she said that anyone who goes to Mandy Made It on Instagram and orders from her, and they've heard the Ivory Tower Boiler Room ad, she will give you all a free Ivory Tower Boiler Room t-shirt with your order. So head right now to Mandy Made It. You know, if you were really looking for that special gift, now you don't have to look any further because I have you covered with Mandy Made It. Okay, I hope you all enjoy your items from Mandy Made It. And please make sure that you take a photo of your crocheted items so that we can share it out on our social media. I know Mandy would love that and I would love to see what you all are ordering from her. She even has an adorable pillow called Netflix and Chill. And she has these cute coasters that she crochets for your favorite coffee or tea mug. So enjoy all your Mandy Made It products. I always say my hardest interviews here, Shannon, are with academics who are <laughs> academics who are, um, I'll say of a traditional vanguard, uh, not trying to be ageist. And <laughs> they're not used to, they're used to the lecture model. Like I can really tell someone who's on a lecture model and then I have to really cut, stop and cut in. And eventually we do get to some really wonderful points, but I think some are so concerned of getting everything concise that it can become really drawn out. And yeah, 
But that's where the public, they don't want the drawn out, but they do want the, you know, Shannon, what is it like being a philosopher of gender and having done written beyond the binary? How are your students receiving that material? How are you changing your methods because of our current moment in 2023? Like there are ways of delivering that material to the public, in my opinion. In our yeah. English-speaking world, is probably a little bit behind on that as well. Certainly in France and Quebec, what you're talking about is, has been common. Um, as long as there's been media, there's been an appetite to hear from academics, and that's been um, a normal thing. You think about um, some of the public debates between people like Derrida and Foucault and so forth, you wouldn't see the equivalent to that in um, English language scholarship. And I don't know why um, there's there's so little so so little of a tradition of um very public scholarship in the english language world but i'm grateful for folks like you who are trying to make it a thing well and i think it's also the fear i would say like the t risks i've taken is i've had to realize it's not about confirming my biases like you really shouldn't know where i'm standing on all of these subjects. I mean, of course, I have my own views and my own opinions, but I think you also have to be ready to listen to the other side. And that is a hard, like, even though I really do not enjoy, say, an Ann Coulter, I'll still listen to what she says, because if not, then I'm not informed with where the, like, what a right-wing propaganda machine looks like, right? Or why people are actually listening to these talking points and buying them. It's, um, or Candace, what is her name? Candace, it'll come to me. Um, <laughs> but there are, like back to what you were talking about though, I think something that interests me as we're, you know, wrapping up, this has been an amazing conversation, Shannon. I can keep talking to you forever. Um, do you think that with the rise of women's gender sexuality programs, because Stony Brook, we actually have a department and I have seen because departments have started to pop up throughout America, throughout Canada, Europe. Actually, I'm not sure about Europe. Um, I can't speak for that. I don't know if they really have. Have they popped up in Europe, like women's gender sexuality programs? In some places, but some countries have actually been um, legislating against them. And so, for instance, um, in Hungary, um, President Orban removed funding from universities that have gender studies programs. We're seeing something similar um, in Poland. And so uh, it's this very interesting thing that as the programs pop up, we're getting this very strong reaction from the right as well. I mean, it's a little bit like the attack in the U.S. on critical race theory. Yeah, which, again, the writing on critical race theory came from Harvard Law School. And there's a whole history of that. And really, well, Kimberly Crenshaw, who created intersectionality theory. Um, and I just find it so interesting that a woman, a woman of color, Kimberly Crenshaw, who has such a nuanced way of understanding intersectionality, somehow no one wants to credit her with creating, like being part of critical race theory and studies. And instead, it's as if elementary school teachers are teaching uh, law theory. <laughs> it, it doesn't. Yeah, no, I mean, that's another area where there's just complete disinformation. The public is angry about a thing that's not happening. Well, and it's again where 
I wonder, have there been pushes by Kimberly Crenshaw's um, affiliation? I don't, I forget where she teaches, but have they tried to get her in front of the media in the cap? Like I would be really pushing for her to be part of these, like going even on Fox News. Like again, you're opening yourself up to like when Pete Buttigieg goes on Fox News, there's going to be, there's going to be attacks verbally, you know, but you do get your point out there. It's, it's a double-edged sword in a way. I, know, I was thinking of Candace Owens, another oh, yeah. very tokenized, um, you know, right-wing um, talking point person. But at the same time, you have Amanda Gorman who has like been so beautifully open with her poetry. And she was the um, at the inauguration for Joe Biden and wants to run for president, hopefully. Like, I do feel... In America, like going back to what you were saying, Shannon, in America, I think Canada does operate like this too, um, that the public loves a spectacle. Like they love a uh, publicity campaign. They really love influencers, the Kardashians, like um, weighing in on the politicians, like Justin Trudeau, what does he look like? Um, is he a daddy image? I mean, there's just all these... I do think politicians in our countries really become the face of knowledge. And that's not always helpful because they're not always in conjunction with universities. And I think that I would love to see, like you said, the BBC does an amazing job with academics. Like, I think we have these networks, but they tend to be radio shows. Like they tend to be not as public. So right. I do think TikTok and things like that are starting to change the landscape in a good way, even when it comes to, say, feminist discussions. So I'll leave you on that, which is with your book, right? It's a new revised edition in 2023. Has there been, with your students even, like you talk about what they're bringing and nuanced analyses of social media and gender and sexuality studies, like what are some revisions or going back to your book? that you want to open up about, that like you were really informed turning to this book again in 2023? Thanks for asking. The The two biggest changes I made um, were in doing a much better job of bringing in Black, Brown, and Indigenous scholars, voices, and perspectives. Um, and doing a much better job of um, discussing uh, discussing trans issues and bringing in trans scholars in particular, um, and and the book is a lot longer now because of a lot of additional material I, I added in in those areas. Uh, I, I earlier referred to philosophy as kind of white male and conservative, and that's the culture in which um, I came up as a as a young scholar and. Um, one of the features of kind of Anglo-American philosophy is a sort of uh, um, naive uh, valorization of the, the notion of objectivity. And, and so um, philosophers have a tendency to think everything is fascinating and 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 just to, to talk about everything as if it were something we can objectively discuss as fascinating without thinking about um, our living, breathing relationship with it. Um, 
And so when I first started teaching the course and when I first wrote the book, uh, I think it was organized much more around here's this fascinating category, here's this fascinating category. And I wasn't paying enough attention to the living, breathing people who occupy those categories um, and who constitute those categories and think about them themselves. They're not like exhibits in a museum, right? Um, and I um, became really aware of the need to to bring in a lot more of those voices, those lived experiences and that scholarship deriving from lived experience um, probably two years after the book came out and was really happy when, when Broadview offered me a chance to, to, to make those, those changes. They were also wonderful in assigning sensitivity readers to the book who are again scholars in the area who are themselves in social locations where they have lived experience of um, transness and blackness and so mm -hmm. forth. And they were unbelievably generous with um, some suggestions about material I could include and how I can talk about um, different things. And so I think uh, if uh, I wanted anybody, if I want folks to read any new material in particular, it would be um, chapters six and eight. So chapter six really brings in a lot of um, perspectives from um, black and brown and indigenous communities in a like a way better way than the previous version of the book. And and chapter eight brings in a, a lot of those those trans voices. And it's kind of, um, and some of those changes are inspired by um, uh, the influence of Talia Mae Betcher, who's an American-Canadian trans philosopher, who in the heat of the culture wars and the gender wars, wrote a really important um, blog post that later became an article in which she called out philosophers for treating trans people sometimes like tables and chairs. And what she meant by that is that philosophers, when we reach for examples as, as philosophers, we often say, um, so let P be a chair, let T be a table. And, you know, we get really, uh, we provide these really abstract examples. Um, and uh, she rightly called out philosophers for talking about trans people with the same kind of dispassionate um, approach that we would use with tables and chairs. And she was like, not tables and chairs. Um, we are living these lives and that matters. And I think that that comes through in this version of the book much more strongly. And so I'm really excited about that. Oh, thank you. Well, it's even why I've always loved my first reading of Sarah Ahmed's Queer Phenomenology. That's like my number one entryway into queer philosophy. I'm like, everyone, you need to read Queer Phenomenology. I mean, they also need to get, you know, Shannon Days beyond the binary, but Jack Halberstam <laughs> has Gaga feminism. I mean, there's like just wonderful um, conversations or even Sadia Hartman, um, her thinking yeah. on American culture. And I think it's scenes of subjection or one of those works that she did is just incredible. Or, oh my, even Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark. Like there are just some texts and I'm so glad to hear you say that about the critiques even within philosophy, because I think so many people hear the word philosophy and they automatically go to sleep because <laughs> they think it's not, they think the language isn't for them. Like they think that it's so unattainable and it's this highbrow thinking, but anything you're reading has philosophy. Like our lives are full of philosophical inquiries. And I think the disinterestedness is also a white male 
patriarchal, like a perspective of the educated class, like wanting almost you to think it's not obtainable, like that you can't go to the public library to get the knowledge, but you can. And, you know, I did want to ask for my last question, Shannon, is if you could, and I'm <laughs> not asking you to play favorites, but with living and breathing, you mentioned living and breathing subjects and people, which living and breathing who you consider philosophers, and that could be any writer or thinker, like who would you recommend? Like your top three right now, like who are three, even in your book that you who are currently living, you would really want everyone to know or um, who might not be on our radar. Um. Okay, so I'm going to take advantage of your reference to Sadia Hartman, who's not a philosopher, but who I do draw on in, in the book. I, I think um, uh, fent, uh, I just I, I would recommend anything by her. Um, I've already mentioned Talia Mae Betcher. She's an absolutely brilliant um, trans philosopher. Um, oh, the third one's hard now because who am I going to leave out? <laughs> well, I was going to say, is there a male, again, the men, it's not like men need to be entered in the conversation. I don't want that to be seen as my point here, but is there a male philosopher or a thinker that you would recommend who really is aligning themselves with feminist and queer inquiries? Hmm. Um. And I don't want to make any assumptions. Are you thinking like a, a cis man in particular, or is it cheating to use a trans? No, man I or... mean it could be a you know cis man, a trans man. I mean I'm just thinking even. I mean I'll be selfish here, but Dr. Ramsey Fawaz, who's been on our show, is a queer theorist, and he even just wrote an article about um like straight men who do queer theory. And I thought that was fascinating because I'm like, oh, that kind of work is something. Or even Jane Ward. Here, now I'm going to throw out people, but Jane <laughs> Ward had done the tragedy of heterosexuality. Like, I think it's interesting now that queer theorists, Shannon, are turning their attention to the straight community. Like, well, let's put them under the microscope. Like, they haven't been studied. It's like my yeah. straight friends. They never want to say that they're straight. I find it so fascinating. It's like... um they're not used to seeing themselves as sexual subjects. Um, well, I was going to say earlier, when we were talking about the dispassionate philosopher, part of that um, ideal of objectivity comes from um, generations of the dominant philosophers not seeing themselves as having a social location. They see themselves as the default, and so no need to... Um, bring their perspective into things, right? And and so it takes it takes. I mean, that's one of the things I try to do in this book is to help train readers to notice that they too are gendered in some way or another. They too have a social location. There is no non-gender, right? Um, that doesn't answer your question. I just don't no, but no, I think that helps. <laughs> and we don't need to think of a specific person. But I would even mention, and I know that you do draw on her too. But bell hooks, like I will always say. Um, teaching to transgress. Like there's just some texts, you know, those texts, Shannon, where you've read them the first time and you always, you don't remember what was it like before you read that text? Like you were just truly shaped by someone's work and writing. It's why I love TV film. I love um, 
you know, those forms of entertainment, but there's nothing like literature. Like there is just something about you being in that alone time with a work that TV and film just can't transcend. It, it's a different process. So, Absolutely. you know, I want to thank you, Shannon. I um, can't wait for everyone to get their hands on your work, uh, to learn more about you. You know, you're invited back here anytime. If there's like, <laughs> you know, new work you put out or you want to have a conversation about, you know, what's happening in the gender studies community. Um, so for everyone out there, make sure you get your hands on Beyond the Binary. It's in its second edition um, from Broadview Press. They also, everyone gets 20% off because, uh, you know, Broadview is our sponsor. Uh, so look for that in the show notes. And Shannon, this has just been so wonderful. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you so much, Andrew. Oh, is there any um, social media you want to plug, like where people can find you or your website? Mm -hmm. I, I left all social media because uh, Elon Musk is terrible and uh, Meta is terrible and everything's terrible. So sorry, I'm a Luddite again. <laughs> yeah, I do have, though, Shannon's uh, university web profile. So if you know you're really inspired from this conversation or you're reading her work, you want to send her an email, I'm sure she'll, she's open to that. All good things. Absolutely. Uh, if you have any critiques, you can critique me on social media. I'm okay. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Shannon. And I will be in touch with you. I hope you have a great day and bye to everyone out there.